Boy, when the uh, president comes to town, things start shaking, huh? I've been following this thing since the, long before it even happened. I, I listen to AM 1490 sometimes, and the, the local guy said, hey, I don't want to share anything to get people's hopes up, but there's a rumor that President Trump's coming to Prescott. That was weeks ago, and then this week, they said at least 15,000 people showed up at the Prescott airport, and I thought about all that that went into people anticipating and going to see the the president. There was a lot of work that went into that. People had to, to go online and make their reservations, right? They, they had to prepare. Uh, my brother was there when it was still dark in one of the lines. Uh, Carolyn said she saw online that some folks were lining up at 1, 1.30 in the morning. I'm sure they all had their snacks and breakfast and lunch packed and, and sunscreen. So you got to make your reservations. you got to prepare. And then everybody's telling everybody about it. I get a text from a friend says, hey, you coming with me? I said, I can't. I'm working. All this anticipation for the, for the president coming to town. And I got to tell you, I do hope that God's people get involved in the election this year. I hope you read your Bible first and foremost. And a far second underneath that, that you know your constitution and, and you vote accordingly. I do hope that. But as I thought about all the anticipation about the president of the United States coming, I, I had a question that, that came to my mind that, that bothered me. How many of us, when it comes to a Savior who is far above all rule and authority and, and promised that He is going to return one day, how many of us in this world have, have less anticipation for that moment than we did for the coming of the President of the United States? Now, now, you would expect that in the world. We talked about there are many scoffers out there that scoff at the very idea. But I wonder, even within the church, how many of us have less anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ than we did for the coming of the President of the United States of America? Let me ask you to think about it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are you living in eager anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you preparing? Let me ask all of you, have you turned in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you following Him in obedience? Are you telling others about it so, so they can be ready? Peter's been talking about this return in 2 Peter chapter 3. Last week we read verse 7. A heavy verse, it says, The heavens and earth that now exist are, are stored up for, for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's going to be a day of judgment for all who reject Jesus Christ as Savior. He's coming back. I, I think about the moment Jesus on trial, and I think this must have stuck with Peter, because at the very moment when he's outside denying the Lord, Jesus is inside in front of the high priest proclaiming the truth about who He is. Matthew 26.63 says, The high priest answered and said unto Jesus, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. 
Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's coming. I think about that day of destruction and judgment of the ungodly, and I think about a bumper sticker that was popular five, ten years ago. I don't know if you ever saw it. It it said, who would Jesus bomb? And every time I saw that bumper sticker, you know what I thought about? I thought about Revelation 19.11. For all who reject Jesus Christ, as their Savior, it says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have you read Revelation 20.15 at the great white throne judgment which says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, now is the time to ask, have I turned to Jesus in faith and repentance? There is no more important question. Last week we talked a lot about that. We said that was the heads up of the second coming. Make sure you've turned to Him in faith and repentance. We promised that today we were going to talk about the hope of His second coming for those who have turned to Him in faith because here's the the beautiful news after everything you just heard. His wrath is not for believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says there is no condemnation for you. Fear in Christ Jesus. Listen to some of the hope of the second coming for the believer. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, They're waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers the believer from the wrath to come. 2 Thessalonians 1.6-9 Three R's here. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The ungodly will be repaid for their rejection of Jesus Christ and their affliction of God's people. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted. His coming will bring relief to all of His saints who are afflicted in this world. Will in our church who's at home this morning reminded me that the prayer for those who are persecuted in the church worldwide, the day of prayer is coming up. And I think about what a precious promise this must be to those believers, many of whom are sitting in jails around our world today, some of them facing imminent death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. His coming will bring relief 
to all who are afflicted. And I think of those faithful brothers and sisters, and I pray that we in America would stand with them and say, yeah, I'll take getting mocked, insulted, canceled, because I know all you're facing over there, and I'll stand with you. And if it gets worse, we've got to adopt the attitude of the New Testament saints and these saints around the world that says, you can take my body, but you cannot touch my soul. My Savior is going to bring relief one day. To you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire. And then John 14, I love this one. Paul preached this when we went through our, our series in the book of John a while back if you were here. John 14, 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. And I'll never forget that message, Paul. Because with your Jewish background, you, you brought it to life. You explained how in that day when a young groom-to-be was betrothed to his bride, before they got married, he had to go back to his father's house and add a room on. Get it ready for her. And then it was the Father who would decide when the time would come to send the Son, which lines up perfectly with all that Jesus said. No one knows the day or the hour, only the Father. Such a beautiful picture that our bridegroom Jesus is building that room. And one day when His Father says go, He's coming back to, to take us there. Somebody saw this Bible today and said, that's an old Bible. It is. It was my grandpa's. He, he passed away in the early 2000s. And my dad said, do you want his Bible? And I said, yes. And as I flipped through it, there's, there's only one passage highlighted in this whole thing. And I read it right in the context of him passing away. He knew the Lord. It's, it's in 1 Thessalonians 4. He highlighted 14 and 15, but I'll read a little bit around it too. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That brought so much comfort to me at my grandfather's funeral. And I remember many years when we go back there, my dad and I will go visit my grandpa's gravesite next to my grandma. And my dad often says, imagine if that trumpet sounded while we're here. Imagine we see dad and mom fly up and then we follow them. Hey, hold up. <laughs> we're coming. What, what a day that will be for, for God's people. What a day of hope. And Peter talks about that hope in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, according to His promise, we are waiting for, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We'll talk a little more about that new heavens and new earth later, but I, I want to start out by saying 
Peter mentions this not just as some piece of trivia for us to file away or speculate about or map out on an exact timeline. It's not just for speculation. It's for application in our lives. It is to give us an attitude of, of action. In fact, in 1 Peter 1.13, when he talked about the return of Jesus and the hope of that, he said, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I thought about asking you, have you girded up the loins of your mind, but I thought some of you are going to say, hey, what in the world does that mean? And the others of you are going to say, that sounds kind of personal. What does it mean to gird up your loins? <laughs> well, you could go back to Passover, okay, when the, the Israelites were in Egypt and they were supposed to eat that lamb and these guys were wearing long robes that if they had to leave in a hurry would trip them up. Girding up their loins meant pulling that robe up, tucking it in their belt so when it was time to go, they're ready to go. It was a position of action. And that's where Peter's going to go. When we think about the Lord's return, it should not make us passive. It should change the way we live. We should adopt an attitude that I call eyes on the sky, boots on the ground. It should change our very lives. And I want to tell you three ways that our hope for the return of Christ should, should change our lives, should excite us. First, we should live lives that are holy versus lives that are hindered by sin. You know what holy means? It means set apart to God for His purposes and His glory. It also means set apart from sin. We should be living lives that are holy, not hindered by sin. Listen to what he says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the burning of the, the current heavens and earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, I want to unpack this a little bit. That first phrase makes me want to talk to you about bad investments. Okay, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all these temporary things are going to burn. I think about bad investments. I think about some extended family members of mine in a church they went to in Ohio. This, this guy started coming to the church and said he had this great investment deal. It would, it would be guaranteed to, to help you with your retirement and my... Extended family members got in. Long story short, they ended up losing thousands of dollars along with many others, and the man who brought that to the church ended up going to prison. It was a bad investment. They, they didn't know it was. It turned out to be a bad investment. It would have been nice if someone could have warned them. Peter is warning us not to make bad investments. What's, he, what's a bad investment? It, it is investing everything you are in things that are temporary right Jesus said it Matthew 6 19 do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and and where thieves do not break in and steal put it in heaven invest in the things of God since all these things are thus to be dissolved he goes on, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
When he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, that last phrase tells us about the customs there. Whenever you're going someplace, you want to learn something about the customs there. You're heading to the new heavens and the new earth. One of the primary customs is righteousness dwells there. We see glimpses of righteousness even in this fallen world, but in the new heavens and the new earth, it makes itself at home. There is no sin. Sin will be a thing of the past. So if we know that about where we're heading, Peter's encouraging the believers, start living that way right now. I think about this. We went to the Navajo Reservation, Carolyn and I, when we were teenagers with a group from Ohio. We did a vacation Bible school up there. And they told us a lot about the customs to prepare us. They told us when you talk with a Navajo, many of them don't like direct eye contact. That's a, a lot of people I know on a day-in, day-out basis and in the culture I hang out with, they appreciate that. But in the Navajo culture, you're trying to intimidate them. So don't make long eye contact. If you do a handshake, sometimes a firm handshake is offensive because it sends the same message. I'm trying to to dominate you, so don't do that. They told us, because we're from Cleveland, don't wear your Chief Wahoo shirts from the Cleveland Indians because while some may not be offended by it, there may be some on the reservation who are, and you don't want anything getting in the way of the the gospel. We we learned the customs so that we we'd be prepared to, to live there. The custom in the new heavens and the new earth is righteousness. And Peter's saying, hey, don't wait till you get there. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, in light of that, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. I want to talk to you about something. You cannot be made right with God in your own effort. You cannot have your sins forgiven or washed away by your own effort. That happens in Jesus. That's why when you see these words spot or blemish, in, in 1 Peter 1, 18, he used the same words. He said, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's saying, if you're a believer, that's who you are. And in verse 14 in our chapter, he's he's saying, live according to who you are. You are holy. Now live like it. In the power of the Spirit. Your citizenship is in heaven, as Paul said in Philippians 3.20. That's where we belong. That's where we're headed. Let's start living as though that's true now, because it is. In Him we are holy. Let's cooperate with that. Versus lives that are hindered by sin. You remember Hebrews 12, 1? Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's gone through all these saints of the past who are now in heaven up there cheering us on as though in a great stadium. They stay faithful, finish the race. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Nobody in their right mind runs a marathon with a backpack on. Right? Why? You want to be unhindered. The second one, i got to admit, this one messed with my head this week. Learning usually does. I, I was learning some stuff as I studied this next one. We are to live lives that hasten His return. 
Now, as soon as I say that, some of you are like, wait a second. I'm a little uncomfortable with, with that verbiage, but read the verse again. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening, what does that mean? To speed, right? To speed the coming of the day of God. Now, I wrestle with the idea, can our behavior impact the timing of God's return? And at first I thought, surely there's a different understanding of this word, and surely it's only fringe lunatics that believe this. But then the more I started studying, I came after a conservative scholar, after a conservative scholar, after a conservative scholar that said, that's exactly what it means. That God in His sovereignty, He's still in control, He's still omnipotent, omniscient, all that. He allows human activity to impact the timing of things in history. So what does this look like? How do we hasten the, the coming of Jesus? Well, we get a hint in 2 Peter 3.9, right? Why is He waiting? The, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If he's waiting for more folks to reach repentance, how does that play out in the life of the, the human being? First of all, you make sure you've come to repentance. That first moment when you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, and then as a believer, every day is my life lined up with what God has told me to do or do I need to turn from this? But secondly... It ought to be one of the greatest motivations ever for us to get out there and tell other people that need to repent. That's why we're here. So witnessing was meant one thing many of these men mentioned. The church needs to be witnessing to hasten the return of Jesus. You know what else came up time after time after time? Prayer. We need to be a people of prayer because when God's people cry out, He hears them. He hears them. If you ever need motivation to witness or pray, if this is true as I believe it is now, that you can hasten the return of Jesus Christ, you need no more motivation. Now, like I said, I wrestle with this. Does God really allow human choices to impact history that much underneath the umbrella of His sovereignty? God allowed choices to impact the timing of things within the human realm. Never surprised Him, and it was never outside of His overarching purpose. But think of the nation of Israel on the, the border of the Promised Land. They send 12 spies in. Only two of them believed God could do it. Ten of them brought back a bad report, and the whole nation, because of their unbelief, wandered 40 years that they did not have to wander because of their lack of faith. He allowed them to impact the timing, humanly speaking. He allowed a decision in Nineveh to impact history. You remember Jonah 3, 4? Jonah called out to the city of Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. He allowed their decision to repent to impact human history. What about prayer? Prayer. 
Judges 11. Israel had been oppressed for 18 years by the Ammonites because of their sin against God. He, he brought, he allowed, he orchestrated, he sovereignly allowed the Ammonites to oppress the Israelites. In Judges 11.15, listen, the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and God became impatient over the misery of Israel. Their prayers and their repentance led him to bring Jephthah to war against those Ammonites. Is God in control? Absolute control? Yes. In His sovereignty, does He allow our choices to impact history? Yes. So I believe, and if you believe that Lives of prayer, repentance, and witnessing can hasten the return of Jesus Christ. I say, let's, let's get it. <laughs> let's get it. We need no further motivation. Final one, lives that honor God's Word versus lives that hijack God's Word for our own purposes. This comes from verse 15 and 16. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, there's so much in these verses. Uh, number one, you notice he puts Paul's writings next to the other scriptures, elevating them to the level of scripture. If you ever wondered if the New Testament documents are scriptural, this is a great verse to go to. He puts Paul's letters right next to the Old Testament. There, there's a scripture. He also says there are things in them that are hard to understand. How many of you have read Paul's letters? Maybe especially Romans 9 through 11 and said, yes, Peter, I feel you. There are some things that are hard to understand in there. But he also said in there that Paul wrote to them according to the wisdom given him about the patience of our Lord is salvation. We don't know exactly what passage of Paul Peter was talking about. Many wonder, was it Romans 2.4? Paul said, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Evidently, Paul was dealing with people who are looking at God's patience and returning and saying, hey, it doesn't matter how we live. Don't, don't presume on his patience. The fact that he is waiting means he's giving all of us time to get our lives right before him. If you haven't received Christ, He's given you time right now to do it. If you're a believer and you need to lay down sin this morning, He's given you time to do it right now. But He says that there are people who take Paul's writings, the ignorant and unstable, they, they twist Paul's writings to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. That word twist is really interesting in the Greek. I learned that it's the only place this particular word is used in the New Testament. And you know it can mean torture. 
These people torture the Word of God. And what's going on usually when somebody's torturing somebody else? They're, they're trying to make them say what they want them to say, right? Look around the world. This book is being tortured by many to fit it according to their liking. One of the easiest ways to torture the Word of God is to take a verse out of context, out of the, the chapter it's in, out of the book it's in, out of the, the Bible as a whole. Let me give you an example of this. I showed this to Carolyn. I was, I was blown away. This is almost right up there with the garage organizing, Paul. There was a man who had a building fund at a church. And he was preaching out of Acts 2 where they're in the upper room and it says the Spirit filled the entire room. And he said if they had had a bigger building, since the Spirit filled that room, if they had had a bigger building, he would have, they would have gotten more of the Spirit because he would have filled that bigger building. We need a bigger building. <laughs> it makes you laugh, but it's sad, is it not? He, he had evidently forgotten uh, verses throughout the Bible, like the one in Acts 7, 47, it says it was Solomon who built a house for God, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Don't take single verses out of context, and don't sit under teaching where that, that commonly happens. Another thing is to, to highlight one aspect of God or the Bible and, and blow it all out of proportion. Okay, I thought about this, like, how many of you have Mac computers? You got a photo booth? Oh, yeah. Okay, it's fun to sit in photo booth and put the special effects on there, right? Because you can get there and it'll make your head ginormous and your neck tiny, or it'll make your ears real big and your, your nose real small, but is that an accurate reflection of who you are? No. It, it highlights one aspect of who you are against all others. Some people do that with God. Some people, all they talk about is God's love, and, and you never hear about His holiness. When it comes to the Bible, some people only talk about the New Testament and they forget that 75% of this is God's Word as well called the Old Testament. You can think of your own examples. You, you don't want to highlight one aspect of God or His Word without balancing it with the, the other truths that are in there. What about this? Taking out the things we don't like. We won't preach that book. We won't preach that verse. We won't read that because it doesn't line up with my preference. Right? This is like the, I've heard of school photographers. Autumn's back there. Sometimes she has to use Photoshop on pictures of kids because maybe there's a booger or, or something. And you got to get that out of there. But, and that's nice of you. I'm glad you do that. That's okay in school pictures, but some of us want to do that with God. God doesn't have any boogers, but He does have parts that make us uncomfortable. I want to tell you something. You and I do not have the right to play Photoshop with who God is. God is who He is. And so when you run across teaching that deliberately leaves out parts of who He is or what His Word says, that's another red flag. I think about what James said. In chapter 1, verse 23, 
If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What is James saying? He's saying rather than you come into this book and trying to form it to your liking, it's a mirror. It shows you what needs changed in your life. You, you go to your bathroom mirror in the morning and you see a giant booger and you see a piece of salad in your teeth and, and you just leave them there and go to your meeting, you're a fool, right? <laughs> that mirror is there to help you say, hey, I ought to get, clean that up, okay? God's Word is not only to show us who we are in Him and how we ought to live. We are to see that and say, yes, Lord, I repent of this or that and I will make the changes You're calling me to. If we're coming to God's Word simply looking for Him to rubber stamp our sinful decisions, we are wasting our time. Let's let us let it remind us, Christians, of who we are in Christ and how we ought to live as a result. As I wrap up, I just want to share one more thought. I think about two very different kinds of waiting. On the one hand, I think about the way the average American worker on the weekend waits for Monday. <laughs> well, what's that average approach, right? It's, you don't even want to think about it, right? Somebody brings up work on Monday. Hey, I got all these things going on right now. I don't even want to think about Monday. I, I want to live as though it's not even coming. This is the weekend. I've got things to do on Saturday. And Sunday, I don't even want to think about Monday. And so I thought about that kind of waiting. I wondered, are there people in the church that have that kind of approach to the return of Jesus Christ? I know He's coming and I believe it, but I pray it's not for a while. If there are, I think we have severely underestimated the blessing that is to come and overestimated life in this temporal world. Now think about the difference between waiting for Monday and the way a boxer waits for a prize fight. <laughs> Why did that come to mind? Because yesterday Jaden and I were hanging out at home and we had the Rocky Four soundtrack on. I love that movie. Love that movie. And I think about a boxer waiting for a fight. It, there's nothing passive about his waiting. He, he, his life is literally set apart for the moment of that fight, right? That's why you look at Rocky in the movies. He's not eating eight pancakes. He's drinking raw eggs. That's why he's not sleeping in. He's going out in Philly and running five miles. Right? That's why he's not at home in the afternoon watching TV. He's pushing and carrying a, a heavy log up a hill because he's got his mind focused on that moment where he faces Ivan Drago and, and his life is totally set apart because he wants to get the victory. Now there's a key difference for the Christian. The boxer trains for victory. You know what the Christian does? We train from our victory. 
We are overcomers in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. We are guaranteed a new heavens and a new earth. So Peter is saying, set your life apart because that's who you are and that's where you're headed. Spiritually, you're already seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And you're destined body and spirit for a new heavens and a new earth. I want to read you briefly John's words about what this new heavens and new earth are going to be like. Revelation 21.1 John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. I, I read that and I, I think about what many have said. You read Revelation 21 and 22 and then you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and you see He is restoring the original plan. You think about Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day with God and just talk. Unhindered, intimate fellowship with God. No more temptation to get in the way. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of you have shed tears this week. Some of you many over the past month. Nothing more ever to make you cry. And death shall be no more. Never saying goodbye to a loved one ever again. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Some of you are sitting here this morning in pain. Pain that makes it hard to even focus because it hurts so bad. No more pain. For the former things have passed away. What a promise. And the last thing Peter would want for it would be for us to take that and file it on some theological shelf and and go on living our lives as though it's not true. He wants us to take that. He wants us to put our eyes on the sky, our boots on the ground, let our belief affect our behavior. Let it give us hope. Hope that will help us persevere as we live lives that are holy. Lives that hasten His coming. Lives that honor His Word. One of my favorite bands, Thousand Foot Crutch, has a line in one of their songs that says, there's a battle up front, but beyond that's the promised land.